0: Love Talk Radio. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. You
1: are listening to Countdown to Kickoff. I am your host, Anthony Denmark, Denmark Life for Country, a.k.a. Copenhagen, a.k.a. Denny. And this episode is brought to you by com. And since sports never stop, since sports never sleep, that means we always have something to talk about. And since Mason's back, heck, I'm back, you're back, let's go ahead and discuss the latest happenings in the world of college sports. Let's get it. And welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to Countdown, the kickoff. As the intro said, my name is Anthony Denmark, Denmark's like the country, and as usual, as usual, we have a lot of things on tap for tonight's show. We're going to take it back. We're going to take it way, way back. Now, of course, typically during this time during the off season, at least for most college football fans, we find ourselves trying to find things to do to try to fill that empty space that oftentimes we find ourselves reserved for football during the fall. Of course, we do our honey-do list. Of course, we find ourselves doing other things. Well, what I do is I find myself watching old movies. And just so happens that I found myself watching Varsity Blues. Varsity Blues, of course, came out in 1999. And, of course, the theme of tonight's show, we're going to take it back to 1999, Of course, during 1999, the programs that we're going to cover tonight were reaching its heights. In 1999, the Wisconsin Badgers won the Rose Bowl, beat a Purdue-led team. In 1999, Wisconsin also, of course, seemed to finally get the stamp of approval that its mode of success was successful, as, of course, Ron Dane won the Heisman. In 1999, down in Coral Gables, a program that, of course, was mired in scandal, mired in NCAA uh, allegations, finished the season 9-4. and Of course, I'm talking about Miami. But, however, they laid the groundwork for building one of the greatest college football teams of all time. The teams, the players on that squad went, of course, to go ahead and set records in regards to multiple draft round picks, multiple running backs, making money and making millions in the NFL, and, of course, they were led by Butch Jones. Of course, Butch Jones was not – Butch Davis was not there to enjoy the fruits of that labor, but nevertheless, in 1999, both the Miami Hurricanes as well as the Wisconsin Badgers were reemerging in its rightful place back at the top of the mountain. Now, of course, we do know that that was nearly 20 years ago. Nevertheless, the expectations of winning still remains the same. Wisconsin has continued to roll out offensive linemen, roll out running backs, and, of course, down in Miami, you know, they've had brighter days. But nevertheless, in 2017, the expectation still has not changed. When you look at the Big Ten West, we know that Wisconsin is a surefire favorite to win it, led by its identity of running the damn ball. Miami Hurricanes, of course, now under the tutelage of Rick. It seems as if they are now finding, they are locking down their backyard at this particular point. They're probably one of the hottest teams in the country when it comes to recruits. And it seems as if they are laying the groundwork just like they did in 1999 to finally reemerge from the depths of mediocrity and find its rightful place as a national champion. Now, of course, we do know that in order for you to be able to win high school, play in Rose Bowls, win national championships, the first thing you always have to do is franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Well, Coach, I mean, listen, we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. So practice is where it all begins. And right now in college football programs all over the country, that's what they're doing. Spring games have, of course, happened. We're going to review those on tonight's show. But right now, it's all about practice. It's all about making sure that you're able to move faster, identify the opposing offense, identify where you need to go. So when game time does happen, that you're in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing. So in Coral Gables, and, of course, also in Wisconsin, they, of course, are practicing ai of course, may not like practice, but practice makes perfect. And we know when we talk about these two perspective proud programs, practice is the only way they're going to find themselves being able to fulfill their tremendous expectations, and also, of course, being able to do what has yielded such tremendous amounts of success for those programs in times past. So, of course, we want—if you haven't able to get the hint on tonight's show—we're uh, going to talk about Wisconsin. In addition to that, we're also going to talk about Miami. In addition to that, also on the show, what I want to try to do, what I aspire to do, is I want to try to talk about this thing, the enigma that is Taz Saber. Taz Saber, of course, started the season, ended the season with expectations of him being drafted in the first round. However, he ran a slow 40-time, and It seems if like those dreams and aspirations of being a first-round cornerback despite the fact that he thinks he's the best player in the draft, seem to have gone largely unnoticed. I want to evaluate and explore how is it that players particularly can go unnoticed, how their limitations based off of the conference that they play in may provide significant amount of cover that allow these limitations to be largely ignored. Of course, we do know that the Gators do have a very tradition-rich history of defensive backs. We do know, of course, there are several that are getting played to play in the NFL. We do know that several of them, of course, have yielded tremendous amounts of respect in the NFL. Joe Hayden, pre-injury. We know about Neal. We know about Vernon Hargraves, the third. We know about Quincy Wilson. We know about Marcus May. We know about Ted Staple. However, is that monitor DBU accurate when we think about Florida, is that moniker more appropriate to teams that, such as Colorado, such as Washington, who actually play, in air, play against air raid offenses? So that's what we're going to talk about. And last but not least, we're going to try to tie and identify some places where Malik Zaire, who currently is a Notre Dame quarterback who is looking for a place to transfer. It seems as if timing is everything. However, it seems as if time has not been on the side of Malik Zaire because it seems as if his options are all but dwindling by the day. And it seems as if right now what he's trying to do is observe what happens in some of these spring practices to determine if maybe proposed destination is for him. So we're going to try to squeeze all of that on tonight's show. I know, of course, it is an ambitious goal, but nevertheless, if it was not hard, it wouldn't make it worth it. So, until we wait for our guests to come on, let's go ahead and talk specifically about some of the difficulties in regards to free agent quarterbacks right now. Now, of course, we do know that it was this guy by the name of Russell Wilson who made in quarterbacks a Vogue thing. However, Russell Wilson also set up set an unrealistic expectation to believe that everybody could be able to come to a program and be able to fit in seamlessly and be able to help take that program to uncharacteristic height. Now, Russell Wilson definitely did tremendous. However, what we've learned thus far in history is that Russell Wilson is definitely the exception. After Russell Wilson, it seems as if there's been nothing but disappointment. At Wisconsin, we saw that happen with O'Brien, who transferred from Maryland after All-ACC Rookie of the Year. We saw it happen, of course, with Everett Golson, who transferred from Notre Dame and went to Florida State. That didn't work out too well. And so now we are, find ourselves in 2017. And of course, we do know that Brandon Harris, the guy who, of course, was supposed to be the guy at LSU, transferred to North Carolina. We do know, of course, the quarterback who was supposed to be the guy at Duke made the transition, Kirk, and made the transition and transfer to Eastern Carolina. Now, we're trying to figure out where does Malik Zaire go from here? Because the expectation was that this guy was supposedly going to go to North Carolina. and But North Carolina went ahead and decided to go with Brandon Harris. So, it seems as if Malik Zaire's options are dwindling by the day. When it comes to Wisconsin, Wisconsin has already announced that their starting quarterback is going to be returning freshman Hollibrook, who of course, you know, had an overall passing rate of fifty two point six percent, threw a little bit over thousand yards. But it seems as if he is the starter at least for the moment. Now of course, I was trying to there was speculation that he may go to Florida. But judging by how Philippe Franks is progressing at Florida, it seems as if that invitation is all but going to be rescinded unless Malik Zaire feels comfortable enough to hold the clipboard for yet another year. So with that in mind, with Florida no longer an option, with Wisconsin's situation still in a state of flux, where, or oh where, does Malik Zaire go? And I found myself trying to compile a list of places that have done tremendously well with transfer quarterbacks. And I found myself focusing almost primarily on Boston College. Boston College, of course, who's traditionally had an anemic offense, who's traditionally had an offense where they rarely stretch the field, has yielded a lot of success in the quarterback transfer market. Now, of course, we do know that if, in fact, Malik Zaheek chooses to go to Boston College, it's likely that he is not going to put up eye-popping stats it's also likely that he is not going to do anything to try to further boost, boost his resume when it comes towards NFL officials and scouts. So it seems as if although Boston College would seem like the perfect place for him to go, since he, of course, has aspirations for the league, just like every other quarterback, it seems as if Boston College is all but a last-ditch effort, a last-choice a choice that he may have to force himself to make because of the other dwindling options disappearing by each day, by each practice, by each moment, by each second, by each rep. Then another quarterback who, of course, is in a system, has gained additional experience. So where does that leave Malik Zaire? Where can Malik Zaire go? Well, there was speculation that he may find himself going to Texas. Texas, of course, has expressed interest in Malik Zaire, but when you see what's going on down there with Bouchelle, you see what's going on down there with Ellinger, you say to yourself, I don't think that is an option. Now, of course, Tom Herman, and now coach of the Texas Longhorns, has a lot of success in, regard, in a short period of time with his quarterbacks. We do believe that, of course, Malik Zaire may fit the office offensive philosophy of a Texas. Nevertheless, we do know that chances are Uh, Tom Herman is going to want a guy that he can be able to try to grow and develop over time. He, of course, did wonders at Houston, but he had that quarterback for multiple years. And I'm more than sure, although the expectations down in Austin are tremendously high, that Herman wants somebody that he can mold. So where do the options turn from that point? Well, I found myself looking at LSU. I found myself realizing that LSU's anemic offense, of course, has always been anemic, but nevertheless, when they've experienced their most offensive explosive potential is when they've had a transfer quarterback uh, at the helm. Of course, they experienced and yielded a lot of tremendous success having two 1,000-yard receivers uh, when they had Zach Mendenberg. Maybe LSU is a place to be considered. We do know that right now, although the LSU guy. Uh, the guy from Purdue is back at the hammer. We do know, of course, about Brennan who will be coming in the fall. We do know about Narcisse, the other freshman, who, of course, is also still recovering from an ACL injury, that maybe LSU could be the place for him. If, in fact, you're able to thrive and the SEC, which, of course, finds itself on TV quite often, it may provide a tremendous opportunity for Malik Sunir to actually play with playmakers on the outside, but, of course, he never really got a chance to do on a consistent level at Notre day. Now, of course, he did have Will Fuller, but nevertheless, being that he was the backup, he rarely got an opportunity to play with the amount of offensive explosion that, of course, he was able to, that he may be able to do at LSU. But then you have to ask yourself the question. Of course, when you make the decision to bring on a uh, transfer a quarterback, you realize it is for a short period of time. You realize that by doing that, that, the coaches who are able to do that have very little margin for error. So considering the fact that Ed Orgeron has, of course, in my own opinion, had a summer to forget, being nearly blackballed by the high school coaches down in Louisiana, and also now experiencing transfers and decommitments by players on the offensive side of the ball, maybe, just maybe, Malik Zaire could be the answer. But you know what? There are still several options. But, you know, we could have that conversation later. Maybe we can ask our caller specifically, maybe, maybe, Quill Gables could be an answer to both Miami's quarterback problems as well as to Malik Zaire's opportunity to play in a system with offensive weapons. So let's go ahead and get our caller on the line. His name is Cameron Underwood. He writes and covers the Miami Hurricanes so we can find out what's happened and what's up with them canes. Welcome to the show.
0: Hey, what's going on?
1: Now, of course, we do know that in 1999, uh, the Hurricanes found themselves finishing 9 4 but nevertheless they did lay the groundwork for a program that ultimately ended up winning multiple national championships. And I wonder when you look at the 2017 the 2017 team and the number of recruits that are already in tow, do you see any similarities between how that team built itself during the 1999 year and uh, the potential for uh, the Miami Hurricanes to possibly lay the groundwork in 2017 with their recruits and the players they have returned?
0: Yeah, I think that there's a a correlation um, that can be drawn there or a a comparison that is very favorable. Uh, You know, you had a lot of those top recruits coming in in the 99-2001 recruiting classes, guys like a DJ Williams, like Andre Johnson, uh, the list goes on and on, Ken Dorsey, uh, that were the foundation for, um, you know, the the greatest college football team that – has ever been the 2001 Miami hurricanes. And you add in some timely Juco transfers with that, a Bryant McKinney, who was a first round draft pick, never gave up sack in college, Um, a Jeremy Shockey who beat Florida state with his first touchdown catch as a junior in 2000. And then, you know, went on to NFL success. Um, You know, guys like Sean Taylor, rest his soul came in a little bit later, but were integral players. And then you spin that forward uh to this current time where yeah you have you know Shaq Quarterman and the Joe Jackson uh defenders in last year's class who are freshman All Americans, Iman Richards, um, you know, Mark Walton from a couple years ago, but you know, he's a returning player like you're talking about. So there you can draw a comparison there. Um, you know, but I think that we need to find that the instinct of a champion to really spin that forward. But there are some things that could uh for a Hurricanes fan be favorable in your estimation.
1: Absolutely. Now, of course, one of the things that I find quite interesting specifically what's going down in Coral Gables is it's actually been kind of quiet. Now, when you compare it to uh, the tenure that Mark Rick had during his time in Athens, I mean, the summer was dread dreaded, because you knew that there were going to be players that were going to get in trouble. You knew that there were going to be players that were going to become off-field distractions. But thus far this offseason, it's been quite quiet. How has uh, Mark Rick changed his philosophy in regards to – making sure that what happened in Athens is not going to happen
0: down in in Miami. Well, really just holding everybody accountable um, for their actions. You know, last year uh, there were some incidents. Um, Mark Walton was arrested for something that ended up being false, uh, but that was something that challenged his eligibility throughout the course of the summer. Um, You know, so there was that. We did kick off a couple of guys last year for, violations of team rules and other kind of malfeasance. So, you know, it was not all just 100% Phil Waters here um, when the transition happened, when Mark Riggs came to be our head coach. But I believe the fact that he really just has a standard that he is not going to really bend on. Um, and some of those guys who kind of tested that, um, a Cortell Jenkins, who got suspended a couple of times, he's transferring. Um, Tyree Bro. Tyree Brady, excuse me, before the 2016 season, right as Mark Richt got hired, uh, he had gotten suspended a couple of times. um, And he's at Marshall. Now you have Jonathan Semarine, who was a kicker also had multiple rules violations and he's no longer on the team. So I think those couple of um, people who could not change their behavior to the standard of excellence that Mark Richt has put in place, they have already found themselves off of this roster and, finding themselves with other opportunities so i think that's really the biggest thing and again just yet this is you know this is my standard and if you cannot comport yourself to that standard then we're going to have to uh separate ourselves from the the player in the, uh, the university so i think that really just coming in um and being true to that standard and being true to that with everyone has been a big key
1: absolutely again i'm on the line with cameron underwood he covers the miami hurricanes now of course, we do know that uh, Bob Sus could definitely uh, take a lesson or two from Mark Rick. Uh, nevertheless, you know, you enter into the spring, the Hurricanes do have a lot of questions. I know they're extremely thin at the running back position. In addition to that, we do know that there are some questions along the offensive line. And uh, that question, in my own eyes, got a little bit bigger. As, of course, during some of the spring, uh, spring practices, uh, one of the quarterbacks went down with an injury. Now, do you agree with Mark Rick uh, allowing live action and not having a no-contact rule on the quarterbacks? I mean, come on. Not, you can't have too many quarterbacks get injured.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was uh, a big point of contention for me personally. Um, Mark Rick had the quarterbacks live for the first scrimmage, and which is, you know, they can get hit uh, fully. There's no, you know uh, – off-color jersey. Most people wear red, but, you know, since we have an orange jersey on one side of the ball, we put our quarterbacks in black at uh, Miami. Uh, so there's no, you know, non-contact colored jersey. There's no, okay, if a defensive lineman or somebody gets a free shot, they're going to pull up a little bit. No, they they were live, and um, you know, one of them got hurt uh, because of that. He got uh, apparently absolutely blasted by uh, a freshman defensive end, John Garvin, who uh, reminds people of Joe uh, Joe Jackson had a very big hit on the quarterback, Jack Allison, uh, bruised his shoulder. It was thought to be separated at first, but it was bruised um, and gave him a concussion because there's live contact. So uh, for me personally, I did not want there to be uh, full contact to the quarterbacks, but I understand where Mark Richt is coming from in that he said, you know, you can do the thud kind of tempo or the touch tempo with quarterbacks, now, but all of a sudden, come September in a live game is the first time that you see them in full contact um or you know and that just makes you play a little bit differently, and you're not gonna necessarily get that same guy in september that you're that you've seen because you know he's live and in in a real game, so I get that philosophy uh with it, and yeah, everybody just kind of has to do a little bit of a better job, but you know the the lucky thing for Miami right now is that Jack Allison's injury is thought to be minor um he should he's in a concussion protocol right now but hopefully should uh complete that fairly shortly uh there are other available options that have talent um so you know he's not the only guy at that position um a la running back where we're very thin uh so you know there there are some positives to be taken from that and hopefully Everybody, offensive line, running backs, quarterbacks, wide receivers, everybody on that offensive unit can come together a little bit better so that, you know, there are no more um, huge hits to the quarterback as were in the first game.
1: Absolutely. Now, speaking, of course, about the quarterback, you did mention they have uh, they have five quarterbacks right now in the rotation. Now, I did open the show briefly questioning about Malik Zaire and trying to find a place for him. Now, of course, we do know that at this particular point he's yet to make a decision, and I was trying to wonder, and I'll ask your input, what do you think about, I mean, you have five quarterbacks. You may, some people say you don't. that means you don't have one. What is the likelihood of, I mean, is there any interest in the Miami Hurricane program and possibly uh, taking on Malik Zaire, who, of course, you know, for a one-year rental?
0: No, thank you. Um, we're not really in the rental market at quarterback. You have. A Malik Rogier, who's on the roster, and he's a redshirt junior, so he has two more years of eligibility. Jack Allison, who I previously mentioned, is a redshirt freshman, so he has four years to play. You have Evan Sheriffs, who's a redshirt sophomore with three years left to play. Cade Weldon, son of Casey Weldon, former NFL quarterback. He's a true freshman, early enrollee, so he's there. Uh, incoming, uh, but still in high school, is Nikosi Perry from Ocala Vanguard, who broke records for that stood for 20 years at his high school that were set by Dante Culpepper. Uh, he's a guy with a lot of talent that was pretty much handpicked by Mark Rick to be his quarterback uh, of the future. The future could be starting now, could be in a couple of years, but um, you know he's the number one recruit um, on the board for Miami in the 2017. Excuse me, sixteen. Yeah, 17 recruiting class. Uh, and then there's Vincent Testaverde, Vinny Testaverdi's son, um, who was a walk-on. Uh, he's there also. And there's another couple walk-ons uh, on that roster. But I've given you a lot of guys who have talent. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of guys with a lot of eligibility left. So this is not a situation like previously, uh, a few years ago, when Brad Taya came in, where, okay, we took a Jake Heaps, who had been at BYU and had been at Kansas, because we needed somebody uh to go in uh at that position. Malik Zaire just doesn't fit what we're doing here. He doesn't fit what we're building here. Uh and I just don't think there's a need because we have so we're gonna have five scholarship quarterbacks in two thousand seventeen as soon as Nikosi Perry uh matriculates at Miami in May, I believe it is, when he graduates from high school. So I mean I, I get that Malik Zaire has some talent. I get that, you know, he has athleticism that can play at the FBS level, but in regards to the University of Miami, I just don't see a fit because the only reason you would really bring him in is if you have a quarterback situation that is so unsettled that you know that he's going to be the number one guy straight away. So I think that, you know, maybe a University of Florida who – I mean, their offense is just putrid, and their quarterbacks are terrible. Sure, you can go over there, but, you know, there are guys with talent here at Miami, and there's plenty of them. So, you know, while I get the, the speculative nature of you looking for a place for him, I don't think Miami is that place at all.
1: Absolutely. And I'm on the line with Cameron Underwood. Now, of course, one of the questions I do want to ask, specifically, you mentioned Florida. And we know that traditionally uh, Florida, Florida State, USF, you know, A lot of people go to the state of Florida to try to recruit players. Of course, we do know that thus far that Mark Rick has done a successful job of kind of building a fence, the same fence that, of course, yielded tremendous results uh, during the days of Snellenberger, during the days of past uh, great uh, Miami coaches. Thus far, tell me how different are things on the recruiting trail? I mean, I've never, ever thought about, I mean, that level of competition definitely has to be intense. Just thinking about the Florida coaches in the area, then, of course, you didn't, of course, add on everybody else that's trying to come into Florida and pick out players too.
0: Yeah, I mean, the recruiting world has changed over the last, you know, 15 years with a lot of visibility and you have a lot of media outlets and online um, websites and things that do rankings and coverage, you know, uh, our website included at State of the Union. You know, we try to be on top of what's going on from a commentary side, but there's just a lot more eyes on recruiting than previously. So uh, I think that's a big thing um, that has changed. I know that a couple of people were talking, a couple of recruiting writers that I follow and whose opinions I trust, uh, you know, saying that digital film is the biggest change that's happened to the world of recruiting. And by digital film, I mean like huddle highlights and. Uh, YouTube videos where, you know, Miami used to be able to go to, let's just call a high school, uh, Booker T. Washington in Miami. And they could be the first team to know the star players at that school because of proximity. They could have a coach go over there on a Thursday. They could be there at a Friday football game over at Traz Powell Stadium, and they would know those guys uh, before anybody else did because, you know, you had to physically go there or you had to have the coaches. you know, mail you a VHS tape of the players. Now with digital film, you can literally go on huddle or on Google and just type a player's name and highlights. And all of a sudden, boom, it doesn't matter where they are from anywhere you can see them. So I think that's been a big thing where a lot of more of the players in South Florida are known on the recruiting landscape. So that's been a thing um, that has changed, but, You know, everybody always wants to go where the best players are. They want to get the best players for their program. Um, And so you're going to have competition in South Florida for those recruits at a level that is higher than pretty much anywhere else in America. Uh, There's just a plethora of guys, even guys who, you know, if you're a recruiting head like myself, you know that you have your star ratings: five-star, four-star, three-star. Every once in a while you're going to get a two-star, a one-star kid, technically exists, but that's a kid who's not going to play at the collegiate level at any level um, of football. So, you know, you have those guys in South Florida. You're going to have a preponderance of three-star, four-star, and five-star kids, but the three-star guys in South Florida would be your four-star and five-star All-Americans if they were from somewhere else. Um, So there's always going to be a market saturation, and there's going to be a lot of teams that are going to come down and try to get those guys. For Mark Rich. The thing that's been successful heading into the 2018 recruiting class, that's the class that's going to sign next February. Um, Miami is ranked number one across the board uh, at every recruiting site in that class is the foundation of the class has been built over a couple of years. If you're a top recruit, you're not really just popping on the scene in December, January, February before your national signing day. Those kids are known from the time they're in 8th, ninth, 10th grade. So our new staff, you know, they put in work on the 16 class. That was the, you know, right after they got their class. That's your Amon Richards, Shaq Quarterman, Zach McLeod, Mike Pinckney, uh, Joe Jackson class. Obviously, they had a full year with the 2017 class, which they did well with. But they've been building these relationships with 2018 guys for two years and you're really seeing that come to fruition they're not just sitting here and saying hey i'm new on the block and you know we really want you to come to miami you know you're going back to that first question about how is this time in miami football history similar to maybe 1999 or 2000 you're getting a lot of guys from south florida to buy into the fact that they don't have to go somewhere else to be great they don't have to leave south florida to really build their football dreams. So, you know, you're getting guys like a Mark Pope who, uh, for my money, is the best wide receiver in all America uh, in this class. Um, And he's coming to Miami. You have Brian Hightower, who's originally from L.A., but goes to IMG Academy. Uh, He's coming in this class. You have Arthur Arthur Sikowski, who's originally from New Jersey, also transferred to IMG Academy. He's the quarterback in this class. You know, you have so many different guys who – and, I mean, I did mention two guys who are not from Florida, but they go to high school in Florida. Um, but, you know, you're really building those grassroots uh, recruiting efforts. You're building that camaraderie in the class itself where you have uh, Gilbert Frierson, who goes to Coral Gables High School, Frank Gore's cousin. You know, and he's talking to DJ Ivy, who goes to South Dade, down in Homestead, and he's talking to other guys from the, you know, state of Miami, quote-unquote, area. So you're getting them to buy in and come to Miami. And I know that people are going to think, okay, well, that's everybody. Again, I said that there's so many guys. You're going to have upwards of 100 players, high school players who are going to play college football from South Florida in a given year. Miami is not going to get all of them. But Mark Rick's job, has, a stated job, has been to say he wants to get the right ones and a good amount of the top ones to come to Miami. And I think that's really where we're seeing development happen right now.
1: Absolutely. And, of course, we do know that we still have, a little over 100 days until kickoff. Nevertheless, it seems as if the hurricane seems to be back on the right track. I want to thank you for coming on to the show, and I definitely want to have you on back again as we continue to monitor uh, the Miami Hurricanes this spring and, of course, also during the fall.
0: Yeah, you know, thanks for having me. It was a really fun conversation. If you want more uh, talk about the Miami Hurricanes and content like this, you can find me over at Stateofview.com and all of our great contributors always covering Miami Hurricanes uh, athletics in all its forms.
1: Absolutely. Now, of course, one of the things that's often interesting is I don't know if you guys could tell. You heard in uh, Cameron's voice that you see that they that the Hurricanes appear to be laying the groundwork for something special. However, we do know also that fans do not like to wait. But nevertheless, it is easy, much easier to be patient. And you're able to see that the future, you're able to see and take a look at the 2018 recruiting class and see that things are heading in the right direction. Although, of course, the Hurricanes do enter into the spring with plots and questions in regards to the offensive line, we do know that for the most part, the offensive line couldn't get much worse. Although, of course, that may not sound as promising to quarterbacks uh, in live action, it does let you know that things will only get better with time. Although we do not like practice, we do know that practice makes perfect. We do know that in time the offense supply will build some form of continuity and gradually improve. Now, of course, we'll be able to see those immediate dividends in 2017. As I say in life, as I say in sports, ladies and gentlemen, we're definitely going to see what's happening. And, of course, of course, we are definitely going to see what's up. Now, of course, one of the things that the reason, one of the struggles that the Miami Hurricanes have had is the fact that other teams have found themselves going into, into Miami's recruiting base and poaching players. We saw, of course, and Alabama has done a tremendous job in doing that thus far. They got the top wide receiver in the country from last year, according to some recruiting services, who turned down Miami. Miami finished second and came to Alabama. We also, of course, saw that happen with Amari Cooper. Cooper, who turned down Miami and decided to go to Alabama. Of course, we do know and hope that I'm more than sure that Miami Hurricane fans hope that uh, finishing second will be a thing of the past. Nevertheless, we do know that you have to win on the field, and also we do know that probably the most important thing that that Miami will have to do is find a quarterback. According to Cameron, and I kind of agree when he says it, (laughs) Malik Zaire is not going to go to Miami. They're already having struggles. They're already having problems with being able to up reps among four scholarship quarterbacks. I can only imagine him trying to attempt to do the same with six uh, quarterbacks. But, of course, where Malik, Malik Zaire ultimately is going, it's definitely going to be a compelling story to watch throughout this offseason. Uh, nevertheless, let's go ahead and transition to other topics of conversation. Now, sleeping in the state of Florida, now, the Florida Gators have traditionally gained a reputation of being DBU,
0: I and mean, when you look
1: at the track record, you're able to see that they have yielded a lot of successful defensive backs who've experienced a lot of great things in the NFL, Joe Hayden, prior injury, Marcus May, who, of course, will be in this draft, Neil, who of course played in the Super Bowl and worked did tremendously uh, during his time with the Falcons in his first year. Of course, also Vernon Hargraves III. And this year, we have Quincy Wilson and Ted Tabor. Now, when you look at the history, it's well chronicled. We do know that they have developed a reputation or tradition for being able to produce defensive backs at a high level. However, we do know that other programs also state and make a claim to the title of DBU. Ohio State, with this tremendous track record of defensive backs being drafted in the first round. Although their history is pretty more recent, when you look at these past two NFL drafts and the current one are coming up, we also do know that LSU also makes a claim to the DBU status as well. When you consider uh, Tyron Matthew, you consider uh, Jamal Adams, you consider um, several of the other um, – Peterson – but and of course you have Washington this year. They had King, they had Jones, and had a tremendous secondary as well. And also, if in fact you actually stayed up to after dark, you also saw Colorado be able to tout itself as being a DBU based off of tremendous track record, at least in the short term, that the defensive backs on their squad did this past season with Houston and Husobique. But There can only be one DBU. And it seems as if, at least for this past year, that Florida's kind of got exposed as being a fake DBU. And you may say, Denmark, what are you talking about? You got Tess Taper, you got Marcus May, you got Quincy Wilson. Well, I did a little digging. And you know that saying that Jay-Z once famously said, men lie." Women lie, numbers don't. And that takes me to Tess Tabor, who at the combine boasted not only was he the best defensive back in the country, but also the best player in the entire draft. Yes, even better than Garrett from Texas A&M. Yes, even better than Allen from Alabama. Yes, even better than a plethora of other talented uh, offensive and defensive players who will be hearing their name called in this upcoming draft. However, like the saying of Jay-Z, men lie, women lie, numbers don't. He ran a 4.62. And with the hope and the expectation he was going to improve on his time, he then ran a 4.76 at his pro day. And people found themselves scratching their head. People said to themselves, hold on, how is this possible? This guy played in the SEC. This guy played on the biggest stage. This guy played against four- and five-star players. It is no way that this guy is this slow. It is no way that the film is lying to us. But then, you know, I kind of took advice from Chaz Tabor, and I decided to look at the film. I decided to look at the draft history. I decided to compare and analyze some of the past wide receivers that Chaz Tabor has had the pleasure of going up against during his short time in Florida. And then I realized, what happened was, is that although Ted Tabor has definitely experienced a lot of success, and the film definitely has not lied, I just asked you guys to consider and question and think about the opposing wide receivers that he's going up against. And so I looked at the past draft, and I saw, of course, that Laquan Treadwell was the only quarter wide receiver from the SEC that went in the first round. He, of course, also ran at uncharacteristically slow times. He, of course, also matched up Tess Tabor. And who had struggles guarding, manning up against Tess Tabor? Tess Tabor had trouble with Laquan Trevorrow, who, of course, ran a four seven one. And then I said to myself, well, I'm more than sure that there have been more talented wide receivers that were taken in the draft from the SEC that we could say that maybe maybe he's actually gone up against NFL caliber wide receivers, and unfortunately, looking at the past draft, I saw that the next wide receiver from the SEC was not taken until 117, and that wide receiver, of course, was Pharaoh Cooper, who of course was drafted by the San Francisco 49ers. I said, well, how did he do against him? Well. The numbers were quite misleading, but nevertheless, I can honestly tell you that Pharaoh Cooper did not have a bad game against the Florida Gators. That means he did not have a bad game against Quincy Wilson. That also means that he did not have a bad game against Ted State. So I said to myself, this is probably a scenario or a perception that a lot of people have failed to actually acknowledge that NFL wide receivers at this current time are not being produced. In the SEC. Now, I know you'll sit here and and list off Green. I know you'll sit here and list off Julio Jones. I know you'll sit here and list off Amari Cooper. But guess what? The cornerbacks that manned up against those guys actually proved themselves. Vernon Hargraves, Peterson, and Vernon Hargraves. (laughs) Nevertheless, Tez Tabor really hasn't had an opportunity to actually face off against a number one wide receiver who actually found himself being selected early in the upcoming NFL draft. And also I also found myself looking at the quality of quarterbacks that Tez Tabor has been able to go up against during his time while he was at Florida. Now, of course, he did have an opportunity to go up against Jameis Winston. But when you look at the receivers that Jameis Winston had at his disposal of course, he did have a guy by the name of Kelvin Benjamin. But who did Kelvin Benjamin go up against in their matchups? It wasn't Ted Staple. It was Vernon Hargraves III. So, yet again, when the opportunity – that there have been very little opportunities for Ted Taper to actually go up against a quality number one first-round pick wide receiver during his time at Florida. Now, of course, during his time at Florida. Of course, you got a chance to go against Travis Rudolph, who will likely hear his name called very late at the draft. But thus far, it seems as if at least we can say that Chance Tabor helped expose the fact that very few defensive backs in the SEC actually go up against number one starting NFL wide receiver talent. That also, of course, counts for LSU. But it's very different when you look at what's taking place in Colorado. It's very different than was taking place down in Washington with Sidney Jones and also with Shadike Zudeke from Colorado. These guys actually went up against air raid offenses, against nfl starting caliber-type quarterbacks, going up against Jake Browning, going up against Donald from USC, going up against the young man from Washington State, going up against Chosen Rosen from UCLA. Those are opportunities where they were actually able to validate their claim for being DBU, while wow. Tess Taper in the Florida, Gators, and also LSU have really had little opportunity to make such validations. But, again, they said the tape don't lie, but we'll see. Thank you, guys, for tuning in and counting down the kickoff. Look forward to talking to you guys again. Thanks for tuning in to Countdown to Kickoff. Our show airs live every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If, in fact, you missed the show, make sure you subscribe to the podcast by typing in count and the number two and down, one word. While you're at it, make sure you also follow the latest happenings in the world of sport with us at Eat, Drink, Sleep, Sports, and the number two. And you know what? If you've gone that far, be sure and check out...